I'd like you to introduce yourself and describe what you do. Hi, I'm Mark Quinn. I'm an artist. Would you ever term yourself as a sculptor? It's one of the things I do. But I don't think art is confined to a medium. It's definitely one of the things you're most well known for though, isn't it? Yeah, one of them, definitely. Can we talk a bit about um, some of the the most popular work? And um, I'm just going to begin with it because I want to understand it. Um, but you're, you're most documented for your work with Kate Moss. Um, do you ever think about... I'm not sure I agree with you, but... No? There's other pieces as well, like Self, the Frozen Head. Sure. Like Alison Lapper, like the Frozen Garden. I think, I think though, because of using Kate, uh, the reach is, is wide, right? Or is wider than, than maybe... I guess into, yeah, into uh, mainstream culture, that's true. Yeah. So that, that's all I wanted to, to talk about a little bit was um, maybe the deliberate use of someone as famous as Kate Moss, as photographed as Kate Moss, to um, really help get your work seen by millions. Was that something you said? That's not why I used Kate Moss, though. Why did you? Well, I guess there's a few things. Um, it was after I made the sculptures of disabled people in marble. So there were sculptures of people who'd lost limbs through accident or illness. Uh, well, I guess I better start from the beginning. I was in the British Museum looking at the fragmented marble statues <coughs> and all the tourists were looking at them and sort of ooing and aahing and say they're the most beautiful sculptures of um, humans that have been made. And then I realized that if someone whose real body was the same shape as these fragments came into the room, they probably have completely the opposite or different reaction than they would do to these fragments in art. So it's quite interesting that something was acceptable in art, in fact, resonates with people because the sense of loss of the sculptures resonates with the sense of loss that people have and the sense for golden age and, you know, these kind of things and so then I thought well if I find people whose real bodies are this shape it's a pure simple idea make a marble sculpture of them what will happen so I started with a guy called Peter Hull who is a Paralympian swimmer who has no legs and very short arms and I made a marble sculpture of him and it suddenly became apparent to me that it was about, in a way, the very narrow spectrum of what we find acceptable in body form and what can be beautiful. And by taking someone with a body that is not traditionally seen as beautiful and making a beautiful sculpture of them, it seemed like a sculpture from the future, perhaps, if you're thinking optimistically, a sculpture from a, a period when other kinds of body form are celebrated or found to have beauty in. So this was the beginning of a series that ended with the Alison Lapper pregnant sculpture. And after I made the series, I thought, well, if I'm looking at something completely the opposite, what is the most culturally 
celebrated form of beauty. And I thought this is obviously the supermodel. And who is the person? And at the time it was Kate, and probably still is. So I thought, well, why don't I make a sculpture of Kate? But not of her as a person. You know, I know her. It wasn't about her. It was about the image and the way that humans build, create images and then forget they've created them and are controlled by images that they've created. So we look at a magazine of, um, you know, fashion models and perfection and everyone measures themselves up against it and finds themselves lacking when, in fact, many of these images aren't real at all. They're created using Photoshop and effects and other, other ways. So that's where the idea of the Kate sculptures came from. Then the kind of yoga poses that they're in, I wanted to do something that was about, well, I guess to me they're hollow. They're like a shell. They're like, I was looking at these Indian Chola bronze sculptures from medieval India which are these very pneumatic, hollow sculptures of deities that were made to take round the village during festivals, and some of the greatest sculptures ever made. And they're very, they feel very hollow, and in the Indian religion, the whole point of them being hollow was that when they were consecrated by the god, by the priests, the deity was deemed to actually inhabit the sculpture. So when you worship them, you weren't worshipping a piece of metal, you're worshipping the actual Parvati or Shiva, whoever the sculpture is of. And I felt that language was sculpturally a really interesting language to apply to Kate and to the idea of the perfect person, the supermodel. And so so there's a kind of, even though it's Kate's body that I've sculpted into these shapes, there's a kind of um, reference to that in the sort of very flat treatment of it and the fact they're painted white like a, in a way like a cinema screen so that you project the person projects their fantasies onto these objects like they would the original Indian sculptures as well like any religious sculpture people project their fantasies onto crucifixes onto Virgin Marys onto that's what these places are they're, they're zones of permission in which to dream with your eyes open and I felt that in our culture, that's a position taken in some ways by advertising and the creation of cultural characters like Kate, who are seen as a new pantheon, I guess, as the new gods and goddesses. I think that's what I found so interesting about the disabled works, actually, that, and especially with Lopper, that you, you positioned her on the fourth plinth and she became a, another soldier, but fighting for a completely different war about motherhood. And this is all well documented, um, right? Motherhood, uh, being a female artist, being disabled. Um, but the Kate sculptures for me, and this is just because I'm trying to understand them, they, they don't um, have that same, I guess, it's not urgency, but it, it, I don't feel the same... Um, depth to them? Well, they're not meant to have depth. They're, right. they're flatter in a way. They're almost heartless. They are, they are the kind of um, 
rocks upon which they're like the rocks upon which people wreck their lives. They're all the unattainable things. Their perfection, their immortality, they're all the things that don't really exist but that people aspire to. And so they have this kind of, they're like a mask in a way. Whereas obviously the sculpture of Alison is about a real person, not an image. And it's much more about all the human qualities that you mentioned. Which which makes um, a lot more sense. With with Alison, did you ever did you ever worry about um, making a spectacle of of her disability, of her big bulging pregnant um, form? Well, no, because by the time I was making the biggest sculpture, her body looked the same as anyone else's to me in a way. It's just a beautiful in a different way. And I think when you start saying whose bodies can and can't be shown, you get into a very weird realm of censorship that shouldn't really exist. And But I think that the fact of having this different kind of body in the public domain when it was on the fourth print in Trafalgar Square and in fact in a few of the other places it's been shown just um, seemed to bring these questions much more to the fore. And you're able to have this thing where real people encountered the sculpture in a real place and it became out of the world of contemporary art. In a way, I think, which happened more than the Kate Mosses, which may in the media have broken out of art, but the Alison Up sculpture literally broke out of the confines of the art gallery and became outside and people who had no idea about contemporary art were not interested, were confronted with her and you know, had to deal with it emotionally and intellectually. I thought that's what was really interesting about it. And lots of your work has ended up in the public sphere. You know, um, you're one of a handful of artists who has embraced public art as a thing. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on actually what you think about the efficacy of public art. I mean, there's been so much theory and talk about um, the terms being public and art not going hand in hand because of this idea that public is democratic and art is elitist. But but you've managed to walk a fine line with that. And I'd love to just talk about how you think you've been successful or not. Well, I don't think it's about the diff... Well, I guess it's democratic. Yeah, it's better because you... I think the real problem is about control, isn't it? It's about the control of public space and who makes the decisions as to what is put in that space. And 99% of the time, the people who control public space do not want anything thought-provoking, controversial, of any interest. They want decoration, and that's what you end up with. So it was a fluke, really, that there happened to be six people on the board of that fourth plinth um, committee that selected the sculpture for the for Trafalgar Square because unless you put these sculptures in a public place of the first order you're not going to get any reaction to them and I think it's really a debate of public art is a debate about the control of public space and and that's sort of outside the artist's um, realm of control and it's about luck and in fact I, at one point we wanted to take the um, the sculpture from Trafalgar Square to New York but all public space in New York practically all of it is controlled by 
private enterprise and not truly public it's not truly public and there were of the venues that one could have put this no venue would put the sculpture up because none of them wanted the quote controversy of having this image there so therefore the people in New York were not able to see it so that was very much the control of space in New York stopped the public art of that kind of art, whereas if it had been some decorative sculpture, I'm sure it would have found a home very easily. How did you feel about it being shown at the Paralympics? At the, I thought that was great. It was a interesting. <coughs> it's interesting also about how art's made because the um, director of the Paralympics opening ceremony came to me and said, you know, they'd like to have the sculpture in, but obviously they wanted it bigger than the three and a half meters that the one in Trafalgar Square was, and also could it appear within 20 seconds or be carried in? You have this issue that it's a, it's a theatrical realm. So it turned out that the best way to do that was to make an inflatable version of the sculpture, which sounds terrible, but now with 3D scanning and with the way that you can then, from that scan, have a machine cut the fabric very, very precisely and also print on the fabric the texture of the original. You can end up with a sculpture that to the average eye looks completely a solid object. So there was a moment in the um, ceremony when the light moved down to one end of the um, arena and Stephen Hawking was there in his wheelchair. He said some words and when the light moved back to the other end, 30 seconds later, this 12 meter sculpture was there which couldn't have happened any other way. So that was a technical thing. And then, But once I saw it, I realized it was actually a really interesting and different sculpture to the original one, because it was much more this sculpture about humanity and vulnerability, because it's a form held that only exists because it's full of breath, full of air. It felt like it was breathing, like a living thing. If you touch it, it's soft. And all the lines and seams are like something that's been sewn together. You know, it, it was like the experience of a lifetime where it was in the surface of the sculpture. And it became more human than the marble version of it. And that's why subsequently I chose to show this inflatable version in Venice during the Biennale last year or two years ago. Is that, is that why you return to subjects over and over? Is it a sort of desire to... To, to get to the bottom of a piece? Yeah, I guess if there's something new to say, I mean, the truth is I don't really return to subjects, I'm always making new things. But occasionally, when, in that example, when a new way of interpreting the medium, the, the image occurred, I returned to it, but most of the time I don't return to things. But you do return to subjects. So, if, I mean, pregnancy is something that's... Yeah, so, sorry, I, meant, I thought you meant subjects as in... Sorry. ...a person. But themes. So, yeah, themes. Yeah. And pre pregnancy in particular is something that you've... And Kate, actually, you've returned to. You know, mm, The last Kate sculpture I made was in 2007. But you'd done one in 2000 of the ice... Oh, yeah. ...her melting. I did the first evaporating, actually. Right. Sorry. I did the first one then, yeah, and then I did, did a whole series in six and seven. But uh, it's interesting to me in the context of what you just said about Alison Lapper that... that 
your that by returning to the work, something new came out of it for you. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe that showed that one should go and look at things again. And I guess the one work I do return to is self, the frozen head, because every five years, to me, that the work of that is all of the, every five years I make a new one with a new mold and new blood taken from me. So <clears throat> there's a kind of, the series of them is really the work and each individual one is like a part of the work and um, those sculptures are well they're kind of like Rembrandt redone by Beckett or something because they're self-portraits but they don't really change they just keep on repeating but they do change well, so, doesn't ha you, uh, doesn't your blood change? It does, but visibly. I mean, yeah, of course it changes. And so you could biopsy the sculptures, and you could read completely different things from them. But but and also over over time, doesn't the doesn't the blood? Mm, it's no? frozen. I mean, it it may change a bit, not that much. I don't think. You um. If we just could go back to the the pregnant form, which for me is an, an interesting um, way of a of a man in particular looking at a at a woman, um, I'd love to talk about the 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 way of all flesh, the the painting you you've recently done of Laura Stone. Oh yeah, um, that for me reads, I mean, beautifully in an art historical setting with Manet's Olympia and and. Um, all of the precedents before of the to be looked at female, but you've you've set her in a um, a sort of chamber of meat, and so she's she's in a position to be consumed. Um, what's your take on it? What are you trying? Well, to I was doing these meat paintings, so paintings of just flesh, and then obviously I wanted to make something with Lara, and she was pregnant, and I thought it was fantastic because actually you then have the whole life cycle within the image. You have dead flesh, as in the animal. You have living flesh, as in her. And then you have flesh being made, as in the baby. So you have the whole cycle of life, in a way. And you have the sense of how we value different kinds of flesh as well, that we value, you know, you can quite easily kiss a baby and eat a hamburger at the same time. So there's this, I like things that are contradictions. And then obviously, as you say, the contradiction of her being naked, which could be vulnerable. But I think in this case, she seems empowered and she holds your gaze. And it's a, a hopefully an image of strength and beauty rather than one of, um, of vulnerability in that way. Why did you choose Lara for it? Um... I guess because I wanted to do something with her and she was pregnant and that's what came up and I was doing the meat paintings. So, you know, circumstance. Would you, would you, would you think you would ever return to, to doing a series of those? In I think, I think one, I mean, I haven't thought of doing that. I like, I really like the picture, but I haven't thought of doing another one of it, no. I think it's kind of, who knows, but not at the moment.
Okay. Complete. And also, there's the other thing of you know Lara being a famous model. Again, you have someone whose body is supposed to be perfect, and it's transformed by real life. So she's not svelte, thin. You know, as in she's she's some. She, you see the beauty of a different shape of the transformation of the body when someone has a baby, which is in a way the reality of life, much more than the abstractions that you see in magazines. So you have a tension with someone who's so famous for being an image that pregnancy is so real, and then her main image is so non-real that you have this contradiction there, and you and you bounce between the two poles when you look at the picture. And I suppose she's also um, brave enough to have now done that again. I mean, the pictures she just did and released post-baby yeah. are sublimely beautiful, yeah. and um, she owns them. Yeah. So as a subject, I can imagine that was a... She was like that pregnant as yeah. well, right? Yeah. Just switching gears then completely, um, and this is completely, can we talk about Man in the Mirror? Well... In 2010, I made a whole show that was about people who transformed themselves with plastic surgery. So there were people who had gone from being men to women. Um, there were people who had extreme plastic surgery, extreme breast enlargement. Um, lots of different people. And one of the people that I did was Michael Jackson, who's obviously had transformed from, in a way, had transformed from being black to being white. And that kind of transformation was, a, I thought, a very interesting one. And so he was part of this whole group of um, cultural... Well, he was... A, you know, I'm interested in, again, cultural hallucinations in the way he's a cultural hallucination. How do you mean? People who become more than just a person whose image becomes a cultural... Um, a cultural matrix and something which represents more than their actual life and, so and represents something within our culture. And I guess that then brings me back to my first sort of question, which was, does it trouble you that the, that, that work can overshadow the rest of the work in the show, or that Kate can overshadow? No, because I don't think, it, first of all, I don't think it did. And secondly, I think that, you know, in 50 years' time, people may not know who Kate is. And it'll be in other work that's, I think, you know, art is long, the present moment's quite short. And I, when I make work, make work, it's for people now, but it's also for people who haven't even been born yet. So who knows what the sense of what's known and what's not known in those eras. You know, you look at Menes Olympia, you don't know who the person is really. You go to the British Museum, you look at sculptures of gods and goddesses and you can appreciate them without having to know the history of those people. There's a so there's a kind of um there's a kind of sense of engaging with time which I've always been interested in and part of time is forgetting and remembering and so what will be remembered and what will be forgotten. So I think that by using well known people you can get you anchor the work in the present moment and you create in a sense something about the present moment but also that's something about that becomes more like for instance Andy Warhol's Marilyn do we really know that much about Marilyn Monroe anymore 
people who are born now, you know, people who are young now, or people in the future, it's become an iconic image that's beyond the real life for the person. Do you worry then about your your sculptures, as in the material lasting? You know, the, we were just talking about um, self and the bloodhead, or even Kate evaporating. You know, those those are things that maybe aren't built to last. Yeah, well, I make some things that that are built to materials that last, and some things that built out of ephemeral materials or materials that may or may not last. But you know, having said that, you go to uh, to Iran, and there's a Zoroastrian temple which has a flame in it, which has been burning for a thousand years, because every day people put more wood on it. So the fact that something's temporary doesn't, if people care about it enough, it can still last. And in a way, making sculptures or artworks that need maintenance is again about time and the moment, and you know, the the frozen heads, will they stay frozen? Will people value them? Or will they become a memory? Who knows? And that's part of the work. Or will someone defrost them? Yeah. Do you um, do you think that if you hadn't been an artist, you might have been a scientist? Maybe, or a film director, or who knows what I might have done. Have you always wanted to make art? Yeah. Since day one? You've got to give me more than that. Well, <laughs> I can't remember is the truth. You can't remember how you started to make art? No, I just, it's, I've always done it, so I can't remember how I started. And for you, where do you begin? For me, what? Where do you begin? Where, do you, where does an artwork begin? Does it, does it, it begin, you said you wanted to do something with Laura Stone. It doesn't begin with any rules. It can be anything. It could be looking at the reflection in this lens. And, like, and that come out with an idea. It could be something I hear on the radio. It could be meeting someone. It could be reading a book. It could be going to a museum. I think as an artist, I'm just always open to things. And suddenly some things, I suddenly, for some reason, my mind latches onto them. And then it becomes a little irritation. And then that irritation kind of works its way around in my subconscious and becomes some kind of pearl and then it comes out as an artwork. Which I guess is probably no better exemplified than in um, the chemical life support work, right? Exactly. So the sculpture of my son made in wax um, mixed with this artificial um, milk substitute because when he was born, we gave him his first bottle and he had an anaphylactic reaction to the milk and it turned out that he was allergic to milk and he had to drink this powder uh, apart from breast milk when he wanted something different he had to drink this specially formulated um, milk powder that was designed for the body not to recognize it as milk so it seems to me really interesting that he was kept alive by this this powder and so I made a little sculpture of him in wax and then mixed the powder into the sculpture. So the sculpture, again, you know, it's in wax, so it's vulnerable. It's, it's a reversible material. It's a bit, it's not frozen, but it's, it, it kind of is frozen, but it's frozen at room temperature, so you don't need a freezer. And from that little sculpture of him came a whole, I then made a series of seven other, I think six or seven other 
sculptures of people who are kept alive by drugs, where I would, um, the sculpture was made of the same wax mixed with a daily dose of whatever drug they took. And the sculptures were, the people were posed in a sleeping, holding pillows so that they were kind of in some kind of sleeping position. And then once I made the sculpture and took the pillows out, they effectively sort of balanced on the floor so that um, they appeared to be floating on the floor. So they're there in this kind of um, area between sleep and awake, in a way in a dreamscape or between life and death. They're, they're in this kind of zone of um, embodied disembodiment or something. But and they're so um, they're so different from the sort of stoic position uh, that Allison took, you know. They these they they feel so vulnerable and weak and well because um, they're and they're sleeping as well. A sleeping person is also the most vulnerable time a human being is, isn't it? In fact, sometimes I think it's quite extraordinary that humans have, or animals have survived when you have to spend a third of your time sleeping. I mean, how how can that happen? How how is it how is not everyone massacred the first night that sleep happened? It's quite extraordinary. I love that actually. Um I I particularly about that work, I, I also love that it reads like a double entendre, right? It's like mm. bodies that matter to you, bodies that matter to someone, and then bodies as physical matter made from Yeah substance um what what comes what comes next on from that for you um at the moment i'm making a series called the toxic sublime which are seascapes about the impossibility of being turner in our global warming world. The impossibility of being what? Turner, or you know, of having that, that engagement with nature that Turner or Friedrich or someone has of an unmediated um, engagement with the sublime. And, and so how are you looking at the seascape? Well, they're, they're I mean, it's always difficult to describe an artwork, isn't it, when you haven't got it in front of you. But they're painted with spray paint on top of a photograph of a sunrise that I took. And then, but overpainted, I mean, completely overpainted, so you can't see anything photographic. And then they're stuck onto aluminium, and the aluminium is torqued and twisted by me. So they look like a section of a fuselage of an exploded aircraft or something. They have a kind of, um, and they also look like a leaf stuck on the wall. So they kind of feel light and heavy and like shrapnel and like, and yet, of course, there is a sublime in there too. So they're about the fact that there is, that, that you do still find um, transcendence in the world, even when it gets fucked up. You you look at um, nature a lot, right? You've you've done a number of 
of sculptures that include flowers or plants. Can you can you talk about why you do that? Yeah, I mean, I did a whole series of flower paintings between 2007 and 2010, and I made sculptures of flowers, mainly orchids. I mean, I guess I liked them because I like the objectness of them. They're very sculptural. I like the sexuality of them. I like the way that the reproduction that the that the flower shape is designed to be pollinated by an insect so that its genes get reproduced and that actually now what's happening is that it's the human um desire for particular colors or shapes that means that a particular flower will be will actually be reproduced by you know nurserymen or 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 florists so you have this sense of um, the adaptability of genes that even though um, it's not what it was designed for it's having the same function and when we go to the shop and buy a flower we're working for the genes of the flower even though we may think we're looking at our own desire so it's this engagement with evolution really <coughs> and there's something kind of when you change the scale of a flower so that you become the scale of a bee or an insect, they become a different kind of thing. They become quite monumental and and baroque and beautiful and strange and yeah, just quite intriguing, I guess. And is is that for you the 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 point of it all? Like, is it, do you just do you make things that interest you? Yeah, of course. That's the only reason any artist makes art, hopefully. And how much do you think about the the final product, so the the the, the form that it takes in the end? How much? Do you well, I think that you know, the final outcome of an artwork happens when quite a lot during the making of it. That I start with an idea, but it always transforms during the creation. Otherwise, it'd be pretty boring if you're just executing things that you'd already thought of. So an idea is the beginning of a journey, and the final artwork is the end of the journey, or the beginning of another journey, the journey of interpretation when people... Because obviously when you put an artwork in the world, you can't control what people will think of it. And what I may think about something may not be what other people think about it. And, you know, once I'm not around people interpret things how they want. 